Welcome to a new series of interviews um, on my uh, podcast and video channel, Cities ABC. My name is Denis Guarda, and um, I'm here to talk about ideas uh, today, about a lot of innovation and about how to change the world. And actually, this I want to start with a quote. I, I think it's one of the things I love quotes, but I think this one is a very old one. But I think it's very important, and I think very important and relevant for the interview of today. So the secret of change is to focus all your energy, not in fighting the old, but building the new. This is from Socrates, that was 470 before Christ. And uh, I think it's still very relevant for the world that we have today. So this series of interviews are in the context of the platform citiesabc.com, that is a global platform focused on cities, focused on innovation, and the wiki smart cities platform that tries to create new solutions for cities, for populations and for us all citizens. But as well, it's focused about society 5.0, for industrial revolution and how innovation, digital transformation and specific blockchain and AI are creating new ways for the world, but as well based its challenges and come up with solutions. So today we have with us Maya Zekerman, that is an emerging media and technology leader that is working a lot of different things and as well, she brings a wealth of experience and been working between visual effects, film production, video games, tech startups, product management and brand narratives. So quite a, a huge and a very diverse creativity person. Her passion revolves around mainstream cross-platform media and transformational media. And as well, the idea of looking at this can come to society, to business models and to cities. She's been as well, the, she's the founder of Transmedia San Francisco, um, an event and media agency, expert in residence for Brave Ventures and marketing manager for Keyframe Entertainment. And uh, as well, she's been working uh, with the underground electronic music and a lot of other mainstream culture networks. Welcome to our podcast series. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. So, yeah. my, yeah, it's it's uh, so you are in San Francisco, I guess, uh, right yeah. now. And uh, how's the weather there? I think good. Everything beautiful well. day in San Francisco. Um, absolutely beautiful. I'm in the middle of the Mission, which is a pretty uh, interesting historical uh, district here in San Francisco. Um, and we've just had a bunch of wind come through because the city is very windy. Um, but uh, today we've got beautiful, clear skies and birds chirping. So very very beautiful day here oh, wonderful it's one of my favorite cities in the world and i really miss it i think not traveling mm -hmm. is making us all a bit crazy so uh, i want to start uh, by your background and i think especially someone so creative as you i'm sure that you had a, a very interesting childhood and as well uh, a grown-up and education so i always like to start by that so if you could uh, give us a bit of a yeah. input and uh, these bases that create the personalities and the people that we are. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, so I was born and raised in Israel and I moved out of Israel in my early 20s to Canada to study film, animation, gaming. And I actually uh, had a career, and it's with a D, had in the film, animation, and gaming uh, industry as a technical director, worked in film, worked in games. And I left that industry to build uh, Transmedia SF, which also closed a few years back. Um, which was a um, kind of a hybrid agency incubator salon 
um, where we really looked at where storytelling meets technology, especially from the framework and perspective of Silicon Valley uh, versus you know, Hollywood, which is down uh, six hours from us, or Mad Ave in New York, because uh, the Bay Area has a very interesting history with media tech. Um, and after that, I uh, worked on several different initiatives, especially there was a day job and kind of a conference uh, focus because of creating community. I worked um, on a very large conference called HardwareCon, which, which came out of Transmedia SF, and that looked at the hardware um, startup uh, initiatives, especially in the Bay Area, which became a very uh, focused hardware um, uh, space with China. But a lot of the interesting innovations were coming from um, the Bay Area, especially the East Bay. Um, and then moved into more clean tech, uh, worked on some clean tech initiatives, uh, including um, more city initiatives uh, at an event called Prototyping the Future, which looked at smarter, greener cities. Um, and then went back into tech and was a VP of operations and product uh, VP of product for a um, social enterprise called Life Guides, which connected people to people who are going through specific life challenges. And then um, after that, went into uh, building another uh, media tech startup called Veeam Caravan that just got sunsetted earlier this year. I was their COO um, that created, and there's the, the technology is still out there, a technology that makes um, collective video storytelling uh, possible. Uh, so there is no, um, it's an asynchronistic a video platform versus this is a synchronous video platform zoom and it also developed some AI or actually more machine learning let's say um, and worked on blockchain so it had its own coin so I've been dipping my toes in all these different worlds and actually finding myself now uh, with a few different groups uh, my main group right now is actually called lumen.io and we actually look at the human aspect of it because literally it took me most of my career to understand that for any of these really important things that need to happen on the planet, if we don't actually deal first with the humans, none of this works, uh, even AI, because we are creating AI. So the importance of who's creating the AI, who's developing the AI is, is paramount. Um, and uh, one of my uh, side volunteering uh, projects has been working with the IEEE Ethical Line Design. That is a um, huge project by the IEEE to actually bring in standards to the development of artificial intelligence and autonomous systems. Uh, we're on our second full book, but I think a fifth draft, and it's a dynamic, growing body of work. Um, There's about 300 people participating in just writing that. Um, and it's not the only initiatives on uh, ethics in AI. There's global initiatives. Uh, but I was very interested in it because they had a, a very specific principle around seeing that AI also takes care of the planet. And for me, environmentalism and how we actually work with the planet is very important. And that's part of other initiatives that I've been part of for years, including um, the very interesting and growing body of work around circular economies and regenerative um, economics, regenerative agriculture and regenerative culture, um, which really looks at what comes after sustainability. If we look at the sustainable development goals as 2030, at some point we need to go beyond sustainability and regeneration is that next idea. And it really looks at 
um, systems that actually have created, have been supported to have the condition to regenerate themselves and don't need the humans to be influencing uh, them anymore. Um, and it's humans with nature versus humans against nature. So uh, that's kind of a little snapshot of a lot of the things I've done. Um, as I said, I was, um, as uh, you, you also mentioned, the World Economic Forum, um, I have a, a little project that I'm supporting, one, uh, one of the projects of the World Economic Forum, which looked at, looks at uh, new mobility. And especially in the, in the frame and in the platform of cities, what does uh, mobility on demand, uh, mobility as a service looks like? How do we change cities to actually change uh, and change mobility in a way that actually makes them more human? and more uh, sustainable and regenerative. So definitely there is a through line which, for me, which is how do we create a better future for us all? And that's been something that's been driving me um, throughout my life. Uh, so all these connected tissues and connected projects are aligned with that. So that's just a little bit so, of me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a fantastic little, <laughs> little bit. Um, so, I want to start uh, before we go to all the different areas that you touch a lot of different um, powerful technologies like AI, blockchain, and as well cities and digital transformation. But I, I want to go, let's go back back to basis. Uh, I think it's particularly important. So someone like you that was born in Israel and moved to the United States and, and Israel being one of the countries that is uh, still seen as probably one of the most innovative countries in the world. So I would like to, I think, probably go to the basis. So how do you see that? Uh, and as well, you are a very innovative person that is doing a lot of uh, cutting edge things, but in a lot of different, very diverse things. So I would like to hear a bit your thoughts about this um, experience with being from Israel to the US, and as well the, the nuances in terms of innovation, because I, I think that's particularly important, even when it comes to programming machines and machine learning is about programming machines to look. But I think the culture and the basis of innovation and the way we frame our spirit is particularly important. So I would like to hear your thoughts about that. And then I'll, I'm sure I'm, I'm going to go much more deep in the areas that have been working. Yeah, I mean, Israel is an extremely innovative country. And I definitely, before leaving to Canada, I actually, my first big job out of the army, because I also, um, the army is, um, is compulsory in Israel. Um, I actually was in a startup um, and it was like late, like late 90s um and i was the youngest person there but uh startup culture is something that i learned from the beginning that was my first big job um and not only that startup was at that point very successful yes it sunsetted like a lot of the startups uh, during that time after uh 2001 and 2002 uh but it was supported by back in the day the biggest names like on its original um, um, seed funds was Efiarazi, um, which was Cytex. So like the old, old guards of the semiconductor world, which actually is a connection between Silicon Valley and Israel is semiconductors. I mean, that's what started um, the Silicon Valley here are the semiconductors. And that's what started the startup uh, scene in Israel. Uh, and then on our board later, um, I think it was A round or B round, um, we had um, uh, Yossi Valdi, who's also one of the biggest names in the Israeli uh, investment world. So that was definitely something that um, started my life as an innovator. Um, and when I moved to uh, Vancouver, that's quite innovative for Canada. 
<laughs> I hope Canadians not going to have a baby for that. But but le- next to like Silicon Valley and Tel Aviv, it is actually, especially in the last 15 years, it's hard to compete. Um, and then going into San Francisco felt very, um, actually very easy because it's the same level of innovation and um, not as not as intense as Tel Aviv and how fast it is, but pretty fast. Um, so I actually felt very connected. Um, and also there is a big connection between Israelis, um, especially in Palo Alto and Tel Aviv. And in between all of my work, I was also part of um, a couple of initiatives that failed. Um, I mean, they've got, a, I think the, the mark of a good entrepreneur is how many failures you have, um, because it means that you tried a lot and you learned a lot um so i did do a couple of uh, interesting um startup uh, initiatives with uh, israeli companies um wanting to create new platforms and digital pl- platforms so i learned also the connection between israel and silicon valley and there are a lot of big investors um a lot of big israeli names here in the valley so that that connecting connection point of the innovation in, in Silicon Valley versus the innovation in Israel. So yeah, it's, and, and I think it's something in the water with Israel. And there's a great book that was written a few years back called startup nation. And there's also a, um, a innovation center called startup nation that I got to actually speak at two years ago. Um, but um, there is, um, there, is, there is an innovation sense in the need to actually continuously building the country continuously being um you know five steps forward in in front of everybody else Uh, so that's in the water and i think it also comes out and it's been it's been proven from the army and how the army is different than a lot of other armies it's a very innovative army and it's a less hierarchical army so it actually lets all people come up with ideas and that's something that very stays with me till today i actually believe that every team is can be innovative, can be entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship, entrepreneurial, um, and also are made of leaders. And if uh, and the, the place of a leader is actually enabling other leaders. And in Israel, you feel that you feel that less in the United States. Uh, so I think that actually creates that innovative space. Um, and I think the permission to be innovative is another thing that happens both in Israel and in Silicon Valley that I've noticed that is different to other cultures. Um, so hopefully that answered. No, no, it's quite impressive. Uh, so I think one of the things that is particular, and I identify a lot with you on that level, is that you are not only an entrepreneurial uh, person, but as well a creative person, and as well um, uh, uh, activist in a good way, because you are building things, you are involved in a lot of the projects that are between the, the theory and the practice. So you have these things. So in terms of... Um, some of the ideas um, that have been framing your mind and as well, you mentioned a bit of uh, all the sense of things. So can you tell us a bit about your process from uh, how do you make the bridge between being an entrepreneurial person that has to do with business, that has to work with companies, startups and deal with success and failure and the pressure of delivering deadlines and, and the pressure as well to make money and to make uh, survive, especially in a very crazy world we're living in. And as well, at the same time, as a person that is reflecting about our world, writing, uh, creating things and, and reflecting things. And at the same time as well, a person that is working on policies and, and creating solutions. I think that's particularly interesting. I would like to hear your opinion because I think it's in the epicenter of your personality. 
Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, so it really is about um, self-expression, -exp self-regulation, um, building capacity for myself and teams, uh, and not doing everything by myself. Um, so it, it really, and I think this is one of the reasons why I landed at Lumen, is because, as I said in the beginning, going round and round, and you go back to humans, and the reason things don't work as they should on this planet is not because we are not smart enough, that we don't have enough money, that we don't have enough capability. We have everything, but something's stopping us from the world that's depicted in, in the back behind me and to the world that we are living in right now. Um, and it's people. Um, and for me, that also is my own self-regulation. Like how do I, for me to actually be able to do all the work, I need to actually be, you know, eating well, exercising enough, sleeping enough, thinking enough, having a space for meditation. I need to do all of those to be able to actually be productive. Um, and in the weeks that I'm not that, I'm not as productive. So I think there is, um, and I think one of the magical things about these times, this moment, is that we all get to be at home. So the personas that we've been creating for ourselves, that is like, oh, I'm the person that deals with that, or I'm that mask that goes out and becomes the business person, they're all dissolving into one integrated person. And um, we're allowed again to not be uh, such specialists. Not that specialism is not important, it is important in specific um, work, but um, the kind of the noble generalist that is, needs to actually come and seize and bring, and bring the new solutions for this new world, uh, that's what these times are calling for, and, and that's my work. My work is being this kind of journalist that actually looks at many aspects of the issues so they can actually start seeing the, the connected tissue. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big student, even though I haven't read enough of Buckminster Fuller. I don't know a lot of people who have read enough Buckminster Fuller, and I know, except the people that I know on the board of Buckminster Fuller Institute, because um, those are the people who actually could read that amount of information. Um, I, that is, um, in order to do work in, in different uh, realms, there needs to be an approach and a perspective and a growth mindset. Um, and that is also what is needed in leadership these days, like uh, in leaderships and in teams, like teams that don't have a growth mindset, um, that don't actually develop um, their people are going to be left behind. Um, and in these new times, we don't need better technology. We need better people. We actually need to work on people more. So for me, that's how I even approach these different worlds is like, how do I actually, how do I actually work on myself so I can use business and, uh, and thought leadership as tools for transformation? Because um, if, if we're not using them as tools for transformation, what are we doing here? I'm just making money it doesn't work anymore. <laughs> the economies are failing us. So um, yeah, so that's what drives me. Now that's very inspiring and I think very important. So I want to touch precisely uh, what is just said right now. So if you look at innovation and special Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley has been super successful, probably the most successful, probably always we can compare probably the Renaissance in terms of mm -hmm. success that did, if you look at history in terms of impact that it had in the world, in terms of innovation, in terms of sh shaping cultures, societies, and even the way we think and the way we act. But right now it's partly collapsing, um, and I'll be a bit more provocative. Um, but if you see the way the United States is, the way um, as well Silicon Valley is failing to cope with, like you said, the, a lot of the issues related with uh, uh, inequality, 
And for instance, if you see right now, the paradox of COVID-19 is in one end, is creating the biggest digital transformation possible in the history of mankind, uh, because everyone is becoming digital transformed in a more accelerated way. But then we have the paradox, and it's not complete, I'm not blaming anyone, I'm just saying, stating facts uh, and being provocative, but in a good way, is that this kind of, uh, is in one end, very successful, but in one end, it, it creates as well a very paradoxical world where we have extremes and extremes that are, uh, in one way, worse and worse. And as well, this comes with manipulation of data and as well, partly through a lot of the companies that uh, Silicon Valley created and manipulation as well with something that happened always in history that we have this thing and this tendency and you are from Israel, so you have the history of the Bible as well, the, the Old Testament or the Ancient Testament. But I think the more important thing is, is really, how do you see that being at the epicenter, but as well being a, a researcher and a, and a thought leader? How do you look at this? And as well an entrepreneur, because this is, for me, actually is one of the biggest paradox is that all this technology is not allowing us to progress and leapfrog, but it's actually dumbifying a huge part of society. Not the positive as well, but definitely there's a lot of challenges. I would like to have your opinion because this is, for me, is one of the biggest challenges, especially the areas that you're reflecting as well. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because Silicon Valley is such a big place. And the Bay Area is a very big and diverse place. Um, not as diverse as it used to be, but still pretty diverse for, uh, for America and for the world. Um, and uh, it is a place of paradoxes. Like, you've got all the paradoxes here. You've got, you know, I live in San Francisco, one of the most expensive cities in the world. And when I walk out, the, out of my house and out of my neighborhood, and I live in a very uh, mixed and diverse uh, neighborhood, I see, you know, million dollar, you know, over a million dollar condos and people sleeping on the street, like in the same breath. Um, and, um, and I think the, the paradox of Silicon Valley is because even though it's extremely innovative, it's still kind of monoculturalist, uh, where the culture ha was predominantly male, predominantly white, predominantly younger. And when you actually create something like that, at some point, systems theory, the system, when you have too much of one thing, it's gonna collapse. Um, and, um, and, and we're seeing actually the backlash of even in Facebook, the, the workers, like, walking out of Facebook and saying, hey, this is not okay. Um, there is a lot of issue, and I think it's also too big, too fast, too powerful, um, and not enough, um, and also in the way that a lot of these companies are structured. You know, for instance, go back to Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg has all the control to do whatever he wants uh, with the company, and I think that is part of, like, why companies like that don't work after a certain, a certain moment, because... He has no reason to comply with uh, uh, with demands uh, until until his whole workforce is actually leaving him. So uh, I mean that that is actually something that is happening. So I think it is, and there's also um, a, a sad truth where um, the like 30, 20, 30 years ago the conversation was this, this technology is going to free us. Um, but, um, I, you know, William Gibson talks about that, um, uh, you know, the technology, uh, you know, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. And the issue is, and I see it again, and I'm always kind of almost a squeaky wheel, and I am like, who's not at the table? 
Like who's not here? We're speaking about this future, but we're not involving others um, in this future. So are we really creating a future? Are we really creating change? If it's just change for the haves and not for the have nots. So there's a huge problem here. Um, and it's, it's very, for me, for in the past 10 years, you could see it. Um, and, you know, how do you change it? Well, that's why I, I started working with uh, IEEE Ethical Aligned Design because there is a set of ethics. If you actually make them into standards, that will actually change things. You're seeing people leaving the big tech giants and actually pushing back um, like a, a dear uh, acquaintance of mine, Tristan Harris, talking about how these technologies are actually taking over our brains. Um, so there is a backlash. Um, and also, uh, you know, there is a lot of each and every one of our of us work to how to actually create more media literacy, how to push back, how to educate our own uh, communities on what is happening. I think there is also... Um, and this is, I think, there, America is a perfect storm for all these issues. It's got a, a, a huge, huge history of, um, well, racism first, anti-intellectualism second. Um, and bringing that together is creating what we're seeing on the streets right now. But this is not new. It's like, if you actually look at the history of, the, of this place, it's always been like this. It's just now we're actually seeing it. Um, I mean, if you think about... Uh, technology and blockchain as kind of a metaphor for the gold rush. Uh, it's the same people. <laughs> it was 150 years ago. It's exactly the same people. So what needs to change is accessible to other people so they can actually create change, uh, more intersectionality, more people of color, more diversity, more inclusion. That's how we come back what's happening. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm completely in agreement that this is, um, this is not working. Um, and, and we see it, you, you completely see it in the Bay Area. So as a, as a person leading some of the cutting edge uh, organizations in the world and working with organizations like the World Economic Forum, so one of the questions I'd like to touch is uh, as an expert in innovation and technology, and as well as a writer, you, you are right now working cutting edge technology, especially with artificial intelligence and machine learning and blockchain. And these technologies have, um, have a chance to, to leapfrog humanity or to destroy humanity in a lot of ways. Uh, both yeah. uh, blockchain in the sense of can actually create a decentralized world or even a completely centralized world that becomes completely dictatorship and, and can go to levels that probably never seen in history of mankind. And you mentioned Mark Zuckerberg, which is a paradox because we're talking about um, past uh, most of the empires have like an autocratic system but normally the 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 ruler or the emperor still was uh, affected by first of all elf and a lot of problems but now we have a, a paradox in the sense that we're going to have potential to have um, i would say people living to 150 or 200 years as the technology becomes more advanced especially as, as artificial intelligence is applied to healthcare. And as well, someone like Mark Zuckerberg that has 60% of the votes of, of Facebook, that means he has a say in the opinions of 1.3 billion people and he has total control, which is even for the, for the history of mankind, this didn't happen because even a, a Chinese ruler or a, a, a Roman emperor could not <laughs> more or less change and, and kind of somehow modify or psychometric the, the one billion people and things like that so 
how do you see this, this, these challenges and as well these technologies? Because in one end, of course, you are part of the, the, the sustainable development goals and you've been involved in, in multiple things. How can we find a balance in the middle of this? Because we definitely have the best tools in the history of mankind. But at the same time, like we just spend, we just talk, we are going through a yeah, challenging time in a lot of ways. So I just want to have your input on that. Yeah, I mean, COVID has taught us um, um, something very powerful. Like uh, we can have the best tools, we can have all the stuff and something that is um, invisible to the eyes can stop this whole world, uh, which is a huge lesson in humility. Um, and um, I, I'm actually very against extending life uh, to humans on that level until we actually deal with other things um, uh, of, of other ills of humanity, like racism, inequality, um, all of these issues, poverty, which all of them are systemic problems that can be solved on the systemic level. Uh, and they're all solvable. Like literally all of them are solvable and within our lifetime, it's more of a decision and it's more of working on like, and that's again why I come back to humans. If we don't work on ourselves as humans and then we think we can actually change the world, that's the problem because we're trying to change the world from the same old mindset. Um, and that's when, you know, extreme characters and, and, you know, Zuckerberg is an extreme character. No human should have that much power. Um, you know, this is, and all of them, like all the big ones, um, they should release their power to at least the council of humans and real people, not, uh, not an, a more board members. Here in California, we passed a law that was actually had a lot of pushback and I don't think it's enough, but the law was you have to have one woman at least on your board uh, in any company. Um, because just even gender, um, uh, gender um, uh, disparity is a problem here. So uh, if you can actually get gender parity before you get, you know, other inclusionary uh, measures, that's even a first step. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm extremely worried about that. Um, uh, you know, I think also the hubris of living, living forever in a finite world is, is very problematic. Um, one of uh, my, my work um, of writing is uh, a, a young adult um, science fiction called M's Theory. And I actually talk about, you know, in metaphor about this hubris of, oh, we're gonna live forever online. And there, there's a new TV show called Upload. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, cool. You can upload your memories if that's what you want, but living longer uh, also is going to create another, and there's been, you know, science fiction around that, another level of inequality, the people who can live longer because they have the money into health insurance and the people are dying and suffering. And we're just creating more and more and more of that disparity. Um, and, uh, you know, how can we actually bridge this into uh, more of a utopian or, you know, kind of Star Trek um, future? And it really is um, really people understanding that they have power. Um, I participated in one of the biggest uh, demonstrations here in San Francisco this week um, and I actually go to a lot of protests uh, and there are, I actually recommend them uh, because what you see on media versus what really happens and you can be safe, you can go earlier, all of that. Um, but when you actually see and you stand with people, all kinds of people on the street, you actually realize how much power 
I have and how much power we have to change things. And it really is a con consistent push to actually change things and it doesn't happen overnight. So, um, you know, being a little bit of a squeaky wheel and actually telling powerful people to their faces, um, you know, do you need a hug? Like what happened that you actually need to actually stay, um, stay here for 200 years? Is there something that you couldn't accomplish in 80 years? Like where, where is your humility? Um, and, and it is a, it is a, an, an issue of inner human capacity of how do we actually cope with death? And the fact that, um, and, and you brought in the, the, um, the extension of life, which, yeah, I think we're all are afraid of, of our own demise. Um, that's the human condition. Um, and all animals share that. Um, but there is something very, uh, as I said, hubris, a lot of hubris around it, and it's extremely dangerous. Uh, because when you actually, and I, and I've been to the, I've been to the conferences where they talked about death as a disease and it's like that death is a universal law. Everything dies it, or transmutes into something else. So just be in the transmutation, transmutation. Um, and I think it go, goes back to, you know, how does one person get so much power and how does he, that person allows himself to stay in that power? And that is lack of humility, that's hubris, that is actually an internal issue. It is not an external issue. The external issue is that we've built a system that actually says to that person, oh, you should be on top. Um, and that's a systemic issue, but it also starts with the human saying, like, maybe I should not have this much power. And you're actually seeing different groups. Um, the uh, CEO of Reddit just uh, uh, got, uh, actually resigned from his board because he's like, people of color should be on my board. Um, so you're actually seeing that change and you're seeing it in some CEOs, you're seeing it in some different groups that are actually reducing that hubris, but it, it goes back to humans. Uh, and that's like why my interest goes back to humans because, um, you know, if we want to change the world, we've got to change the people first. Yeah, I'm very, I'm completely with you. And I think it's, it's very difficult. And I think especially, um, uh, as we do things as well as an entrepreneur and as someone that is building technology and working with companies is even more difficult because mm -hmm. in one end you need to compete you need to build innovation but in one end you see as well especially people uh, I think like us that are having especially conscious about the power we have with technology and what you can do with it becomes even more radical and more possibility to go wrong very serious like what is happening personally. So I think touching on, on, the, on these things, and I think going to more positive angle. So I would like to touch a bit of, um, so first of all, tell us about work, about science fiction. I think it's interesting because you, you touch Star Trek and uh, I think narratives are very important because if you look at the history of mankind and you are from Israel, that is one of the oldest countries and as well probably the most uh, uh, profound narrative in the world has been the Bible, uh, <laughs> for good and for bad. Um, so in terms of the narrative, so we have the Star Trek narrative that is a, a kind of a positive vision of the future. Then we have Star Wars, a bit more dystopic, but still quite uh, more like uh, good and, they, and, and the evil. And the very actually Judaic or Christian on that level. And then of course you have the Terminator and a lot of all, other narratives. So in science fiction, I think it's particularly important because as we build especially artificial intelligence, and for us, I, I interview uh, Ben Gortzel, and for us, you can touch uh, artificial intelligence from the perspective of open generation or open 
generative AI or um, a lot of other different areas or open augmented AI. But we have definitely a lot of challenges on that level. So I want to hear your vision on that level as a, as a writer and as well someone that builds technology because it's, it's really important that we talk about this and that we put it verbal as well and they write it. Yeah. And I speak a lot about, uh, so my, my narrative model is a collective journey that actually walks away from the hero's journey, which is, by the way, part of the issue is like, who is actually the protagonist in a, a narrative is also part of why we're building the same things on in, in our reality. It's literally mirroring because art always, always mirrors, um, art always mirrors reality uh, and reality mirrors art. Um, but one of the, I think, biggest issues that we are facing right now is that most of our futures are dystopian. Star Trek is, we keep bringing in Star Trek, but that's like literally one of the only ones. Um, you can count them probably on five the mainstream. Uh, not, not, there are other utopian stories. Full on mainstream, I would say uh, Star Trek, um, Star Trek's franchise, which is actually getting darker and darker with a new, like Discovery and Picard were much darker than the ones before. Um, and then everything else, I mean, the expanse is extremely dystopian. Um, and, and there's so many others. So dystopian is actually mainstream and utopian or any other, um, I actually call it topian, the place, um, is actually completely rare. Um, and, and I, I think the other one that I always bring up is, um, uh, uh, Black Panther because it has a, actually beautiful uh, metaphor for a utopian city that actually exists right now, which is Wakanda. Wakanda is a future city that's actually, actually hidden with the metaphor of that is attainable right now if we actually get our stuff together and actually work together. Um, and so I'm seeing, I'm seeing actually the rise of um, solar and hope punk right now, which is the kind of, and there's also the cli-fi, the um, uh, climate, uh, climate crisis, uh, science fiction, which has been here for a very long time. Um, and I actually believe, and that's why I wrote the book, is that utopian depictions of, of uh, our future are actually, um, uh, are actually revolting against dystopia. Uh, the dystopia is actually mainstream. Um, you also have uh, you know, Black Mirror that actually canceled their show because they can, can't compete with reality. So in the time where dystopia is a reality, utopia is actually our rebellion. Um, and you know, the, the idea of, uh, I call it the, regener the regeneration rebellion. Extinction Rebellion, by the way, as a group, has actually so much regeneration rebellion in their uh, principles. If you actually read their manifesto, it's actually less about extinction and more about regeneration and the possibility of creating a new world. Um, so if we actually want to get out of these times and any kind of assemblage of a, of a civilization that is for a future versus, um, versus full-on dystopia, we need to actually create these futures. And if we don't see those futures, we're going to just create more dystopia. So I really believe that I not only believe there's other people supporting me in, in my conversation that if we don't actually build beautiful narratives of the future, we're not going to get there. Um, so I took it upon myself because I didn't see a lot of these narratives to actually build a world like that. What, what if the world works? Um, and my actually, uh, you know, aligned with your, uh, uh, your work with uh, Cities ABC is that my world, especially in book one, revolves around a city. And what would a city look like in nine different timelines, nine, nine different possible futures? Book one only deals with five. 
But the idea that um, there is also the false dichotomy between a full-on dystopia and full-on utopia, where the reality is there's somewhere in between. And if we really work on the in-between space, we're actually going to be better off for everybody because that's actually balancing for everybody. It's not in full-on, you know, hippie ecotopia, which, by the way, San Francisco's um, has been depicted as an, as an ecotopia a few times. There's the book ecotopia and then the fifth sacred thing, um, which um, a, a, a friend called Start Hawk that I met over the years here, very hippie, very about kind of collectivism and uh, kind of guild-based uh, society. Uh, and then the other side is like full-on dystopia. But there's something in the middle, which is more of a Star Trek world where you've got all the wonderful technology, you have AI, you have all of that, but that actually enables more freedom for the people and creating and uh, the Star Trek uh, future is full on UBI and uh, UBR, like, you know, universal basic income and universal basic resources. Um, so we figured that out in that future. It is possible and it's a very inclusive and very diverse society. Um, so what Gene Roddenberry created um, is a metaphor for what is already actually happening in the best places. Like when things actually work, you actually see that showing up. It's just very small right now. Um, and even with the marches that are happening globally, you're seeing the diversity happening. So I, I think there is, um, there is that pathway towards that, but it just, it's just going to take a lot of work. Um, and, and I think, yeah, acts of, of regenerative, regenerative rebellion need, need to happen. And, um, it's not how bad the world can be is like, what if we imagine how good the world can be and work towards that and bring everybody with us. And yes, it's going to take a lot of work, but, um, I don't think there's better work to do than maybe getting to something like, like that in the background, um, and imagining, you know, how wonderful it could be versus looking outside and going how horrible it is. Um, and, and really being, um, uh, I also, one of the things that I talk about is that being in a space where I get to imagine what if a world works is an extremely privileged place. Also why I have a lot of responsibility to bring everybody with me in my own capacity and, and capability to think through that in a way that actually is inclusive. That's uh, very inspiring. So, so I want to touch uh, that part precisely in terms of you touch the cities. And of course, this is a platform about cities, ABC. But as well, I like the idea of the cities that is the epicenter of innovation. So for, if you see, for instance, all the innovation that we have in history of mankind came out of cities, um, or at least uh, uh, urban areas. And if you see right now, we have cities like San Francisco, New York, London, uh, Hong Kong, um, Tokyo, that are probably bigger than most of the economies in the planet. Uh, so there's a component of economical, component of innovation, and a component of policy making. The universities are in cities and so forth. So how do you see this part of the innovation, the part of uh, lack, what can we build? And as well, the work you're doing as well, both as, uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of innovation, but as well in terms of the companies we're working. Because I think that's particularly important. And I think, like you said, we need to build the narrative in a slightly different way, but as well in a pragmatic way. And I think even the activism, normally you have to do activism in your city, you cannot do it in a country, in a country level. And even, for uh, actually your um, country fellow, Arari, Professor Arari, is actually touching a lot about, as a professor of history, um, about the importance of the narratives and the importance of ideas for us to, to shift and shape a new world. So I want to hear your, your visions on this, and especially around cities. 
Yeah, and I, and I love Ivan Noah Harari. He's, uh, he's got some really, really great... I mean, I've been reading him for years. Um, so cities, uh, cities were the centers of innovation. And, um, you know, I, I will expand cities to watersheds and bioregions because I think it's really healthy to look at cities in the guise of also bioregions um, or collaborative cities. So, you know, when we say the Bay Area, we're actually talking about a bioregion. Um, and in that bioregion, we have several cities working together. Uh, during COVID, it was very interesting to actually see that. But there's also something about city as an identity, uh, city as a platform. Uh, and in the future that I'd like to see is, um, city, is cities as places, bioregions, and then the planet. Um, I think this whole nation state thing has really been failing us. Um, but there could be global federal bioregions bio supporting each other, especially during big things like, you know, fires or other climate crises where a big region actually joins together to support and maybe there is a global um, a global kind of um, UN 10.10 um, uh, that actually supports with money and, and just, you know, very, very large support when, by, when areas, bioregions are, ha are facing issues such as climate crisis. But um, yeah, I mean, cities are such an important place for experimentation from learning, from how do you actually do better uh, social good, uh, from creating spaces, uh, reimagining our mobility. Um, and one of the things that COVID has brought to the forefront is this doesn't work the way we actually use cities uh, and cities uh, have too many roads. And how do we actually reimagine cities where we actually look at it from the human perspective first, what is good for humans versus what is good for cars? Um, and transportation. So I think there is a lot of opportunity right now to change that. Um, the uh, kind of the new thing that I'm seeing coming online very, very soon is the um, uh, the uh, UAM, the uh, Advanced uh, Air Mobility, the uh, sorry, the Urban Air Mobility uh, concepts of like how do we actually even start taking over skies? Which I'm not a huge fan because of birds and bringing nature back into the cities and as soon as you start having way too many um way, way too many uh, uh little uh drones flying around that's also going to affect our um city's birds um but there is there's a huge importance for cities as bringing in uh, new tested uh, ways of being uh and also exchange of information uh and you see it in the c40 uh, the, the global mayor uh, coalition back in a few years ago, there was the um, uh, there was the resilient cities. There's a lot of what cities can actually do because they're not that big yet. They're big enough to actually create change in all these different levels. And I think there are the leaders for aligning and getting to the sustainable uh, sustainable development goals. Uh, it is, we are capable, it's big enough and small enough to actually create change. Um, and, uh, and there is also that group idea and identity, which is healthy in a way of, this is how we do it in our city, this is our culture, because you know, culture is how we do things around here, to actually teach other cities about what works and what doesn't work. And it is that very healthy exchange of information. Um, one of the things that was very, very pronounced after um, the American elections of 2016 is that cities and states are the future um, and, um, and smaller is actually better. 
And there is actually much more alignment between mayors and, and governors in this country, especially on the East and West Coast, than with the federal government. And um, the previous governor of California did this big uh, global climate uh, action coal, uh, action uh, uh, event here a couple of years ago, and now his um, his uh, uh, heir, <laughs> uh, Gavin Newsom, is doing amazing, tremendous work, but they're working with cities as well. The reason why, on a whole, California has been very good with COVID is because the governor worked with the mayors. So even in times of crisis, the importance of cities and mayors as leaders um, is extremely vital. And here in San Francisco, yes, we have a mayor, but we also have the board of supervisors. So it's much more coalition-based. Um, so I'm seeing, I'm seeing just the importance of cities in, in, in these times. And also because we're going to have 70% of humanity living in cities. So we have to actually create cities as tools for transformation, as places of experimentation. And I'm really hoping livable cities, green cities, uh, more zero emission zones in cities and the massive amounts of cities adopting these uh, initiatives globally. Um, and we're going to see a lot of change and a lot of power. So, um, but it's, it feels that it's distributed power, power versus um, kind of the nationalistic power, um, which makes me, why my work has always been in cities and makes me excited to continue my work in cities. Oh, that's very inspiring. And I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's critical. I think, like you said, that we, we, we create these visions and I think your work is particularly important on that. So you are as well, one of your main positions right now is Lumen. Um, yeah. So tell us about Lumen. Uh, what is Lumen? So Lumen is a small strategy firm uh, and we look at leadership. We look at culture and we look at future as, uh, and business as a tool for transforming the world. Um, and we really believe that if we don't actually work on the person themselves, whether they're the actual leaders or actually every team member to become a leader, and we don't work on culture, culture is how we do things here, and we, don't, we actually can't create better futures. If your team and your leaders are empowered, are self-regulated, um, are uh, taking care of themselves before they take care of the rest, are creating an environment where there is psychological safety, there is space for innovation, there is space for um, a, a growth mindset, and they're actually creating that condition, we can actually create the future that we want to have. Uh, and especially during these times, we need new types of leaders. Um, our, um, our framing in Lumen is creation leadership, uh, which in the past, the leader is somebody that got stuff. Uh, yes, you created stuff in the world, but you really got stuff. And now leaders are empowered to create the future with their team of leaders. Um, and uh, really, how do we truly build learning organizations? So our work is with very large organizations and small organizations. And the idea is to transform them from within so they're uh, resilient for these times and their people are resilient. Um, and it really is the, uh, some of the intangible parts of um, growing leaders uh, and growing leaders who actually grow other leaders. Because um, without that, we're not growing the companies of the future and we're not innovating. Uh, and, you know, and, I come, and I come back to that idea that if we actually don't work on the self, we don't work on our own leadership capacities and capabilities, we don't create that in our team, we're going to recreate the same future that we're in, as the present that we're living in right now. 
it's never going to actually go to the next level. And that's what Lumen wants to create first create the condition for, from where to even, and we're even struggling with the word innovation. Um, is it innovation anymore or is it just continuous, uh, con continuous inspiration, continuous, um, development? What, what is this next conversation? Um, the world economic, uh, forum just coined it as the, as the great reset. Uh, so, we even the sustainable development goals are problematic because they look at development. We actually need to actually look at what does reset mean in the guise of what needs to happen. So this is where Lumen, like we've been doing this work. I've only joined um, just a few months ago, but uh, these are dear friends that I've worked in different organizations and different groups together for years. So now at Lumen, we're actually seeking that conversation with um, large legacy organizations of you know how do we actually work on them work on their culture the old uh, the old normal because we just can't like we can't rebuild what just happened like there was a reason why they needed to be a great pop cannot come from the same perspective and to do that you need groups like lumen who actually know how to work with people work with culture and transform people's capacities um and it is work i mean we don't come in and lecture we actually do side-by-side -side work uh, we use um, sprint methodologies, et cetera, but it's a kind of wax on, wax off. We'll work on the culture but by, by, by working on delivering something. Because um, we all know that we learn best when we actually are working on something, not talked on. Um, I learn best by doing. Uh, so that's a lot of our methodology is to support better doing in, with better agreements, with better culture, with better how-to. And then actually the question of, why you're actually doing what you're doing, purpose work uh, of organizations, of leaders, of people. Uh, and everything should have a purpose. You know, why are we doing what we're doing at every given moment is a good question, um, which is another big thing that we're all coming back to is, are we asking the right question during these times? And, uh, you know, and, you know, I've given you some of my perspective. I don't know if it's the correct answer, uh, but I love the question. So it's like continuously driving the question of how do we do better in this world? is huge right now no very i'm yeah it's it's a uh, it's the the critical element and of course uh, i think we need a certain uh, sense of uh, um commitment and rightfulness because of course we cannot just i think one of the challenges we are facing right now is that i think especially because everyone has access to a voice in social media everyone has access to to have their say they can actually go and trash anyone and especially people that have been studying for years or researchers or experts. We saw that with Brexit, we saw that with the, what is happening in the US, which is very scary. But as well, we see the, I think especially the, the questioning of a lot of things that we thought they were established and they're not now. So you are as well an advisor for the Global New Mobility Coalition and as well an advisor for the IQ Center accelerating the CSG, CFDGs, so SDGs. So, can you tell us about both these? Because this is quite interesting organizations that are precisely touching some of these things that we're touching and talking here. Yeah, so the New Global um, Mobility Coalition is a new uh, initiative of the World Economic Forum. And it's got a bunch of members from everything from the shared mobility world, like Uber, Lyft, et cetera, to uh, C40 and all these different uh, leaders who actually are looking to cities as tools for mobility transformation so moving from um from uh just regular transportation into shared uh, mobility micro mobility 
and mobility as a service uh, with the idea that, you know, we've got our, our phones with us. Um, the uh, mobility of the future will be we, we don't own, we just share. Um, and that actually reduces congestion, reduces uh, tra uh, traffic in the cities. And also, if we actually get to the point where none of us own um, our transportation, but we share and we have mobility as a service, mobility on demand, what happens to cities then? Then that's an opportunity to close more streets. Uh, because of COVID, we have huge global initiatives to close streets for people to walk. Here in San Francisco, we have a bunch of streets blocked. But what happens if we actually decide as cities to keep those streets closed? What happens to those streets? If we have less cars, how do we actually transform? I mean, for me, this is like where I get really excited. I immediately say, bring in native trees, break down the sidewalks, bring in more um, uh, community gardens and, and get people to actually grow their own food or have local, um, local city uh, urban garden, urban uh, vegetable gardens that provide food for the city. I mean, there's all these opportunities. So yeah, that initiative actually looks at that and it looks at uh, things like the zero emission zones, which are areas within cities that are really are, you know, they're all about renewable, less transportation, all transportation has to be electric and actually creating these spaces in cities that it can actually be beyond just parks, um, the lungs of the cities and places where this, this technology can thrive. So, um, so that's that's the work uh, that this coalition is doing, and it's it's been really interesting. Of only this is brand new, so um, and we're building the brand right now. Um, the YK Center um, is uh, an initiative that's been around for a few years now. Um, they're uh, wanting to actually create uh, more metrics around the SDGs. Um, and even make uh, the SDGs more monetizable because uh, the SDGs are a wonderful framework. The issue is that it's hard to actually get people and get nations and get cities to do them. Uh, it's become more kind of a, I've seen it more of a social thing where um, the, the public interest is to, when, when public knows what the SDG is, there is a push towards that. Uh, and especially in like SDG one, you know, no poverty or specific ones are very, are very, very important um, to actually enable all the other ones. Um, so they look at, um, they also wanted to bring in the SDGs into Israel. So um, that's been their work for the past four or five years. Uh, their founder, uh, Yoda Kahana, uh, was a leader in uh, insurance mitigation. And back in the COP in, in Rio in 2012, he sat with the largest insurance organizations, uh, their, their, their um, leaders, and got them to sign a uh, divestment of money. Probably never happened, but like they were already in the conversation of insurance has to divest their money in order for the um, sustainable development goals. And that was even before that, it was before the Paris Agreement. Um, that insurance can actually be part of how we mitigate climate change because 2% of their uh, global revenue per year is $2 trillion. Imagine what we can do with that money every year if we use that for, um, use that for climate, uh, the climate crisis mitigation and building more renewable cities and regenerative cities. Um, so yeah, so that's what they've been doing for a few years now. Um, and it's been, it's been interesting kind of, uh, not an, not as active as an advisor, but have been advising them, um, on enough deeper, um, in the last few years. 
Well, that's uh, that's fantastic, and I think these projects are really important. And I think this, I think, is the best way, at least, for, that I see that we can actually make a social impact that is meaningful, but as well that can create effective um, solutions. So it's been actually one hour interview. So I, I really appreciate your time. Um, I think I don't know. I think one of the things I would like to highlight is if you could tell us. Uh, I, I think we could go for a couple more hours. I have a lot of questions, especially in terms of your writings and in terms of your ideas. But I think probably where people can find, where they can read about you. I know that you are active in social media. You are in Medium. You are in a lot of places. But just where coming from you, the allies who put us all the link, the links in the interview. Yeah, so my website, myazuckerman.com, uh, I got a lot of information there and leads. And then my uh, medium is Regenerative Narrative. Um, and I have a lot of, I, it moves between full on my models for narrative to my model for regenerative entrepreneur and leader to just full on musing. Um, it, it's it's funny because I have to put on different hats. I'm like, am I am I writing as a business person or as more of a narrative uh, thought leader? It's it's hard um, to sometimes uh, separate. Um, yeah, and and I am on all socials. I'm not on TikTok that much, but on all socials. <laughs> I, no. I I like more. Um, I like deeper deeper conversations. Um, I, I find, yes, for sure, we need to actually have deeper conversations. And there is a lot of fear uh, for me of people going, going into lighter. Um, and I think also another act of rebellion during these times is actually reading a piece of news from 20 different perspectives. That's huge, huge rebellious act right now. <laughs> and then trying to make sense making and it's very hard to do sense making these days, but even understanding how to do it and how to think that way, I think that's not something I'd love to leave the viewers with because that's something I grapple with as well. How to actually learn how to sense make during these times. No, uh, wonderful. I like that. Uh, I like your sense of provocation in a constructive and, and meaningful way. So, well, it's been an honor. I, uh, I think Thank we you. will put this and definitely will be other, other ones following up. And uh, I want to appreciate the time that you give us and as well your passion and the dedication. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you.